Uh, If you would, open the Word of God with me to Psalm 73. That's where we'll be this morning. It's a a beautiful psalm, a beautiful prayer from the psalmist Asaph, as he had at one point in his life struggled with a certain biblical truth um, that we we can all seem to struggle with at one point in our lives, uh, if not multiple times in our lives, depending on our circumstances and situations. And so if you don't mind, I'd like to read our text in its entirety before we get started, and then pray, asking God to guide us this morning, and then we'll just jump right into what the text is saying. So Psalm 73, beginning in verse 1. Truly, God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens, and their tongues strut through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them, and they find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there any knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked, always at ease. They increase in riches. All in vain I have kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God. Then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And after you will receive me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning. In the name of the one who was stricken on our behalf. In the name of the one who rose to give us hope. God, we come to you before. We come before you in the name of Jesus. We thank you for the opportunity to open your word. I pray this morning that your spirit would move, that you would speak this morning through me, God. I pray that I would be your mouthpiece. 
use me to reveal the truths that are found in this text, God. We thank you for who you are. And it is in Jesus' name. Amen. About eight years ago or so, my mother was diagnosed with colon cancer. And at the time, I wasn't saved. Uh, looking back on it, this, this was actually the time where God began working in my life uh, to reveal himself to me, to reveal this truth to me. Uh, and, and it was at this time that, that God saved me through what was taking place in my mother's life. But e- even after that moment, growing in my walk with God, uh, I began to question him a lot about this. Uh, because my mother was, some people would say, the ideal Christian. She had a Sunday school class. She was part of every evangelism effort the church put on. She invited people to church like crazy. Uh, it was even embarrassing for me at some times. She would teach the kids. She would do VBS. She, would, she was constantly trying to make sure that God's truth was proclaimed to anyone and everyone that she could come in contact with. I don't know how many times that I heard her pray for these friends that she had at work and and. and just in life, who, who weren't attending church and who, who were far from God. And she would weep for these friends, and she would pray constantly that God would save them. And she would take every opportunity she could to turn those conversations with those friends to gospel conversations, with doors being shut in her face constantly, but she never gave up. And yet, she was the one that got the cancer. It wasn't me, the rebellious teenager at the time. It wasn't it wasn't the, the people in the community committing the crimes. It wasn't the guy who had just robbed the 7-Eleven a few weeks prior. No, it was my mother, the ideal Christian in the community, who got the, the illness, got the sickness. And so I began to question God, why her? Why was, why was she the one to get this illness? She didn't deserve it. If anything, she deserved to be walking through life thinking, that will never happen to me. And to be truthful with you, to be honest with you, that was the completely wrong question to be asking at the time. And, and I pray that as we work through this text this morning, we'll come to understand why that was the wrong question to be asking. But it's a very similar question, a very similar situation to what the psalmist is asking in this psalm. You see, in the first few verses, he actually does something very interesting uh, that we don't see much in Scripture. He actually gives us his conclusion at the very beginning. Uh, in verse 1, he says, Truly, Most certainly, God is good to his people. But he's quick to let us know that there was a time when this truth in his life was not real. There was a time in his life where he doubted this truth. Where he was seeing what was taking place in the world and he said, this this truth, it, it doesn't make sense. How can God be good to his people with all of this taking place? See, the psalm, as we work through it this morning, should call, call us to reflect on our own lives. As Scripture should every week, but as we look at the psalm, we should reflect how we sometimes fall in the same situation that Asaph, the psalmist, does. So let me ask you this this morning. Have you ever, or are you even now, doubting God's goodness? Do you doubt God's goodness? For whatever reason it might be, do you doubt the goodness of God? Because you see in verse 3, that was, that was Asaph's problem. He said, I, I, saw the, I saw the arrogant, I saw the, uh, the wicked, I saw those who were far from God, and they were getting blessing after blessing after blessing. 
It doesn't make sense, God. If you're, God, if you're good to your people, God, why are they the ones getting all this stuff? And to make sure that he, he lets us know how deep this concern was in him, how, how passionate he was about trying to figure out this, this apparent contradiction, he spends 12 verses giving detail as to what he saw taking place. Beginning in verse 4, their pain, they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. These people, these wicked people, those who are far from you, God, that have no concern whatsoever for who you are and, and, and what you do, they mock you. These people, they never see pain. We never see these individuals in pain. They die, and it's a quick pain right before they die. Some of them don't even have that. They're fat and sleek, and he's using imagery to kind of present it as, as a well-fed, healthy animal. They have no problems. They, they get everything they need plus more. They're not in trouble like the others are. They're not stricken like the rest of mankind. God, how is it that I can look at this person who mocks you, who chooses not to follow you, and they are getting everything? But yet everybody else seems to just, it seems like you don't even care. They're sick. They have pain. They see troubles. They're suffering. They're dying. But, but yet these people who are far from you, they, they have such the, an easy life. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They, they are just getting in an abundance of blessing. It's not even like, oh, you're, you're, it, why are you blessing them? It's why are you blessing them so much? It's not just, oh, they don't face pain, but they don't face pain, but they get rich. They have a bunch of, of uh, treasure. They, they have no problems. It's just so much, and they're getting this, and they're living however they want with no regard for you. Why? And he says even they recognize it because in verse 6 he says, therefore, they wear pride as a necklace. Their, their, their violence is like a garment on them. They have no care in the world to hide it. They know they're getting the blessings. They know they're rich. They know they're prospering. And they choose not to hide it. They boastfully walk around saying, you know what? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter that we oppose God. Look what we have. Because then he supports it again with verse 9. They set their t- mouths against the heavens. They are talking bad about God. They're, they're saying he doesn't even care. And why should we care to follow God? I have an easy life. What more do I need? Why would I need God on top of all this? Apparently, your life isn't going too well. Why do I want your God? I have everything I need. You're struggling. You, sh- you should actually be coming to what I, what I follow. And what I follow is myself. In verse 10, he even says, hey, everybody else recognizes this. You know, your people, it says his people, God's people, turn their back to them. They, they find no fault. And so they say, how does God, does God know what's going on down here? Does God even care that this is taking place? Does God care about us? Does he know that we're suffering? Does he know that we recognize the truth that he's good to Israel, to his people, but yet it doesn't appear to be taking place? 
And then in verse 13, he says something that's very scary, because we can all do this. He begins to question, is it even worth it? God, I know who you are. I know truth is about you. You're the God of Israel. But is, even, is, it, is it worth it to follow you? It doesn't appear to be worth it. I'm stricken day after day after day. I'm sick. I have illnesses. I'm not rich. Matter of fact, I'm struggling financially. I'm rebuked day in and day out. Is this worth it, God? You claim to be good to your people, but it doesn't appear to be so. So is this even worth it? Is following you worth it? And so he constantly goes back to this question. It's a question we ask all the time. Many people ask it. If God is so good, if God is such a good God to his people, to his followers, why are they not the ones having an easy life? Why do, why do good things happen to bad people? I'm reminded of a, of a, a sermon that I heard from Bodie Bauckham one time. He's a pastor here in Texas. Uh, actually, he's moving to Africa to be a president of a seminary. But he, he tells a story about one time he was on a college camp, campus doing a speaking engagement, and he had a young man come up to him afterward, and he said, uh, Mr. Bauckham, can I ask you a question? And he said, of course, I'd love for you to ask a question. And he said, uh, if God is so good, if he's such a good God, why does he allow bad things to happen to good people? Why does he allow good things to happen to bad people? He said, I'll even further the question. Why, why does God just allow bad things to happen? And Mr. Bauckham said, uh, after giving a, a smirk, he said, that's an excellent question. However, it's the wrong question. He said, so I'll answer it when you ask it correctly. And the young man, kind of taken back for a second, said, what do you mean ask it correctly? It's my question. I can ask it however I want. And Mr. Bauckham said, ask the question correctly, and I'll answer it. And so they went back and forth for a few moments, and the, the young man, very frustrated, said, all right, I give in. You tell me how to ask the question and answer it for me. And so with a little smirk, Dr. Bauckham said, here's how you ask the question properly. You look me in my eyes and you ask me how in the world God can know what I thought, said, and did yesterday and not kill me in my sleep last night. He said, until you ask the question that way, you don't really understand the true issue. You think you do, but you don't understand the true issue. He said, when you ask the question the way you asked it, you believe that the problem is somewhere out there. The problem is somewhere out there. Separated from you, the problem is out there. And he said, when you ask the question that way, what you're really asking is, how dare God not employ his power on behalf of me? He said, instead, you should be asking, how dare I steal God's air? Because the last breath, last breath I took was a gift from him. See, what, what Dr. Bauckham was trying to convey to this young man, and he would be saying to Asaph if he was talking to the psalmist, is, is people who ask questions like this want to judge God based, about, based upon how he carries out their agenda for the world. He says, and the problem with that is 
You want a God who's all-powerful, but you don't want him to be sovereign. He says, but when you have a God that is all-powerful and sovereign, you're at his mercy. You can't tell God how you want things run. You see, Asaph viewed himself as perfect. Okay, if you look at verse 13 and 14, he's saying, look, I've kept my heart clean. I've followed your commands. I've washed my hands in innocence. And he's saying it's pointless. He's saying, look at what I've done, God. I deserve your goodness. If you're truly good, I deserve it for what I did. So you see, he, he misunderstood the truth. If you're doubting God's goodness this morning, it would be safe to surmise that your hope is in something or in someone who has failed to deliver, deliver what was promised. And here's what I mean. Many times we take a truth that is found in Scripture and, and we distort it. Or someone distorts it for us and so we misunderstand it. But when you distort a, a truth, when, when a truth, a biblical truth is misguided, it twists God's promise and leads you to a false hope. Okay, so he knew, he knew the truth in the beginning. He said, truly God is good to his people. But he says, I almost stumbled one time. Because I thought that God being good to Israel meant that I get good, evil people get bad things, and that is how God shows this truth. So he twisted God's promise. For Asaph, the truth was was there. He believed it. But he misunderstood the outcome, the implications of that truth. But God never promised following him would be that easy. Never promises a life of abundance, of of perfection, of a struggle-free life. And this is a question many of us deal with today. We question whether following Christ is worth it because it's not as easy or as comfortable as we assumed it was going to be. We ask questions, if God really cared, shouldn't my health be better? Shouldn't my marriage be better? Shouldn't my finances be better? Shouldn't our church be growing more quickly? Shouldn't the finances coming into the church grow at a rapid rate? We're doing what God wants us to do. Why, why are these things not happening? But when you call into question God's character based on your circumstance, you reveal what you truly hope in. You reveal what your hope is truly placed in. You see, if you're saying, if God was really good, if he really cared, wouldn't, wouldn't my health be good? Your hope isn't in God. Your hope is in your health. If you're saying, wouldn't, wouldn't God care? Doesn't God care? If he cared, wouldn't my marriage be better? At that point, your hope is not in God. Your hope is in your marriage. So when you call into question God's character based on your circumstances, you reveal what you truly put your hope in. And so well, how, how do we evaluate where our hope is at then? 
if we, maybe we just can't figure it out yet. Maybe we're, am I sure? Am I hope in God or is it in something else? I'd like to ask you this. What do you think is most sufficient? What do you find to be most sufficient? As long as I have this much money in my bank account, things are going to be fine. As soon as I found my future spouse, things are going to get better. As long as I get this job, things are going to go fine. But how often do we find ourselves saying, doesn't matter what the outcome is, Christ is enough. Christ is sufficient. Despite your present circumstance, do you find Christ to be enough? Look at verses 15 to 17. We see a dramatic change in Asaph. He says, if I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. See, th- th- that's a huge lesson for us. Because he, he knew the truth was right. Okay, so he knew God is good. He just didn't understand the apparent contradiction taking place. But he didn't say that truth must be wrong. He understands, okay, maybe, maybe I don't get it. Maybe I don't understand it. So yeah, God, I'm questioning you, but, but may, maybe I'm in the wrong. And so he has enough sense to not just go out and proclaim his doubt. Because I would have betrayed the generation of your children. Meaning, had I, had I said my doubt, had I told people my, my predicament, had I been walking around saying, Look, look at these wicked people. God must not really care. God does not care about us. Yeah, he said he's good to his people. We claim he's good to his people. But look, look how much we suffer. Look how much pain we're in. And look at what they get. He said, I would have, be- I would have betrayed your people by doing this, God. Do we recognize that, that when we have doubts sometimes, that if we just walk around blasting those doubts, questioning God, that it could actually affect somebody else's faith, that we could lead somebody astray, that if we're, if we're spewing falsehood just because we have a temper tantrum, things aren't going the way we want, you actually affect somebody else's trust in God. Not saying you have more power than God does, but the fact is you just... Put some doubt in their head. Well, maybe, maybe God doesn't care. Maybe, maybe I can do what the evil people are doing, get what they get, and still, still follow God. We should be mindful of some of the thoughts and concerns we have and to follow the example of Asaph. Because you see what he says in verse 16, 15, he says, I, I didn't go out and just complaining to everybody. I didn't tell everybody the problem. No, I went into the sanctuary of God. I didn't call everybody up and, and just spew, spew my doubt. I went to worship. I turned to God and I worshiped. And I sought Him out. He says in 15, it was a wearisome task. I couldn't figure it out. I was tired. So he goes to worship. He goes and pleads with God, help me understand this. 
You see, he, if, we, if we were to read Ecclesiastes 8, Solomon actually deals with a very similar problem. It's almost, you could almost say, wow, they, structured, they, they followed each other. He, he's, he's asking the same thing. If, if God really cared, why are the wicked people prospering, and why are the good people, the followers of God, why are they suffering? He asks the same question. But he also comes to the same conclusion. He understands that God is a holy and righteous and sovereign God who will judge the wicked. In the second half of verse 17, after he goes to worship, after he goes to plead with God to help him understand this, he understands their end. He understands what happens to the wicked people. He understands that those who are far from God, as he says in verse 27, those who are far from you shall perish. And he's talking about an eternal death. He's talking about an eternity facing God's wrath. He says, when I, when I entered your presence, God, when I came to worship you and seek, and I sought you out, you showed me that, yeah, they, they can have the riches now, they can have health now, but in the end, you are righteous and you will judge those. You will judge everyone, but you will judge those who are far from you. And they face your wrath for eternity. He says, truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall into ruin. Really, what he's hinting at is maybe things on the outside look like it's going great. But that doesn't necessarily mean things behind, behind closed doors are going well. It's easy to put a mask on in front of people and make things appear to be going great. But then look at verse 21 and 22. When my soul was embittered, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast towards you. Not only when he goes to worship, when he goes to seek God, does he have God's character revealed to him. He also recognizes his positioning with God. He recognizes his relationship with God. He realizes he's no better than the wicked. I was like a beast towards you. My questioning you, God, my doubt in you, almost leading myself to just give up on following you because it wasn't worth it in my, my opinion, I was no better than those who I'm trying to condemn. You see, he realized that God is holy and righteous and sovereign, but that he wasn't righteous and holy as he previously had thought. If we look back at 13 and 14, I've kept my heart clean. I've done what you've asked me to do. I've washed my hands in innocence. I'm the perfect person, God. He realizes he's no better. No better. And we all need to hear this this morning. We all fall short of God's perfection. Doesn't matter how good you think you are. Doesn't matter that you're here this morning. Doesn't matter that you own a Bible. We all fall short of God's holiness. We all fall short of his goodness. We fall short of what he requires of us. And that's because our tendency from birth, our nature, is to turn from God and turn to worldly things. 
We'd rather chase some sort, some creation rather than come under submission to the Creator. We inherently think and believe that we know better than God. It is our nature to think that we could run this place better than God can. And that was Asaph's problem. But he recognized he was no different and that he deserved the same eternal punishment they did. And this is the problem humanity faces today. We all believe we know better than God. And that sin separates us from the one and true holy God. But we know from the end of this psalm that God enacts his eternal judgment on those separated, those far from him. And that's what Asaph recognizes in verse 7, that they all die. Everyone dies. We all face a physical death, but it's after that physical death that, that makes the difference. And so this is the struggle we all battle with. Okay, well, if, I, if I'm far from God, apart, if, I'm, if I'm apart from God, if I'm separated from God, if he's holy and I'm not, then what do I need to do to get holy? What do I need to do to, to come near to God again? Asaph thought he was doing it just by doing what he thought he was supposed to do. And the correct answer is we can't. There's nothing. There is nothing you can do on your own merit to make you right before God. Nothing. It's like in the passage read earlier from Ephesians 2. We were all far from God. We were all far from Him. But He chooses to bring His people close, near Him. Everyone is far. Everyone is apart from God. But God chooses to bring His people near to Him. And that's why Asaph says, for me, it's good to be near to you, God. Why? Because you put me there. But how does God bring us near? It's through revealing to us the truth of who his son is and what he did as our substitute. It is only through the blood of Christ that the payment for sin was made. It's true faith in the life, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ that we are brought back near to God. And it is God who keeps us there by His grace. He doesn't pull us near and then let go and say, keep yourself there. I'm hands off from here. You've got to continue in it. Friends, this is the gospel. This is the good news. It's the fact that we were far from God, but he chose to bring us near to him. And he promises to keep us. Friends, if you've never heard this gospel before, I encourage you. I plead with you to, to find me after the service, to find somebody sitting next to you after the service, and just ask him about it. To say what he was saying doesn't necessarily make sense. I need, I need, I need to understand it more. Or even come up to me after me and tell me you disagree with me. I'd love to have that discussion with you. 
But the fact is you need to hear it this morning just like we all need to hear it. We constantly need to be reminded of this gospel. We constantly need to be reminded that we are no better off than the quote-unquote wicked if we are apart from God. The gospel gives us the only true hope which is found in Christ. And when we recognize that, we can proclaim that Christ is enough. You see, we should be encouraged by verses 23 and 24. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. You remember in verse 2, it says, where Asaph said, I almost slipped. I almost fell. He recognizes he didn't because of God's grace. That God held him. That God kept him. In these verses, he makes clear that it was not on his own goodness, his own work, that he was able to prevent himself from turning away from God. He recognizes that it was God who did it. And so do you see how he's starting to understand this truth? Truly, God is good to Israel. If God wasn't good, he would have let him just go. You want to doubt me? Go ahead. You think life's better off without following me? Go ahead. But no, God is good to his people because when he began to doubt, God revealed to him the truth. God helped him understand the truth. It says, your counsel guides me. How, how, how does God counsel us today? It's not through visions. It's not through some ritual. It's through his word. How often do you find yourself opening God's word, seeking his counsel? Now, I'm not saying you can never ask somebody for help. I'm not saying never ask Pastor Samuel for advice. I'm not saying keep everything to yourself. But if you're not seeking counsel that's rooted in God's word, you're following the wrong thing. So if Pastor Samuel gives you advice and it's not rooted in God's word, it's probably not good advice. And I'm sure he's okay with me saying that. If he's not, I'll get a phone call, but we'll deal with that later. Me coming up here and, and giving you a good speech, some advice, some to-do list, means absolutely nothing for you. Helps you in no way except to feel better about yourself, maybe. Unless it's rooted in God's word. I know that's why they encourage discipleship here. Are you discipling one another? If you are discipling somebody, is the advice and discipleship that's taking place, is it rooted in God's word? Small groups is the focus God's word. In the services here, God's word is central. That's why the songs picked are all rooted in scripture. You have scripture readings. The prayers are based on scripture. Because God's word is what gives the counsel. Not me, not Pastor Samuel, not anybody who comes up here behind this pulpit. Is God's word central in your life? See, God made known that the ultimate judgment takes place in eternity. Yeah, things may be going well for them now, but 
It's the best they're going to get. But he also recognizes that those whom the Lord keeps have the promise of life after death. Have an eternity where they get to praise the one who saved them. Have an eternity spent thanking God that they don't have to face his wrath because of what his son does, did. And that's why Asaph can proclaim in verse 25 and 26 what he does. Whom have I in heaven but you, and earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my portion forever. He desires nothing but God himself when he comes to realize this. He's saying, you know what, God, if, if you give me the riches, great. If you, if you give me the health, great. If you decide to keep those things from me, great. Doesn't matter. I just want you. I just want to be called your child. Because, God, your goodness is in the fact that you keep me near to you. Your goodness is in the fact that you called me to you. Your goodness is in the fact that after death, I don't face your wrath. Your goodness is in the fact that when I doubt you, you don't let me completely abandon you. Your goodness is in the fact that when I'm faithless to you, you are faithful. Your goodness is in the fact that you don't give up on me. And so it's by God's grace that we know that we are made gods through Christ by the Spirit. And so do you find Christ to be enough? Can we truly say we desire nothing but Christ? Can we repeat the words prayed by Asaph in 25 and 26? Can that be our prayer this morning? And I'm not just talking about material things. It's easy to say, okay, yeah, yeah. I value Jesus over money. I value Jesus over a new car. I value Jesus over my job. I'm talking about every situation you're in. All of our circumstances are different when we are facing different struggles. But when we find Christ to be enough, that is where our hope lies. Our recognition of our positioning in Christ should lead us to contentment in Christ. We should be able to proclaim that Christ is enough, recognizing that we are only made right before God because of Christ. And so if, our pain, if, our, if we're in pain, if our health fails, if our marriage uh, doesn't seem to be going the right way, if we can't seem to find a spouse, if, if the, our courting, dating relationship isn't going well, finances aren't going well, if the church seems to be struggling, is our positioning in Christ that we hope in, that we find God's promise in. And I'm in no way saying that if we find Christ to be enough, then your situation will get better. I'm not saying it's like an amount that you need to work up to and things get better. But I'm also not saying, hey, suck it up, things are going to be bad. Okay, I'm not, I'm not telling you that either. 
What I'm saying is despite the situation, look to Christ. Realize he is the one your hope should be in. And whether or not you get healthy, you're going to die eventually, but it's what happens after death. Whether or not your marriage gets better, it's what happens later. Your, your, your goal should be to depict the gospel the best way you can in your marriage. You're struggling to find a spouse. Your hope isn't in the future spouse. Your hope is in Christ. And that you're going to live every day as a single individual to glorify God. So what happens when we find ourselves acknowledging that Christ is sufficient? Okay, I hear what you're saying. And I'm going to strive to make sure I know that Christ is sufficient in every situation. You look at verse 28. For me, it is good to be near God. I've made the Lord my God my refuge. So he recognizes that's where his hope needs to be in. And then the final thing he says, that I may tell of all your works. Okay, so we see, we see a couple different things by that statement. What Asaph is saying is he's saying, I'm not going to go in the corner and I'm not going to say, okay, I know what's going to happen to the wicked eventually. Too bad, so sad. I'm near to God. They'll understand one day. They'll recognize. They'll get what's coming to them. No, he wants to go and tell. He wants to tell the wicked, hey, you may think you have everything, but you really have nothing. And what he also wants to do is he doesn't just want to sit in his own house and say, okay, God's enough, God's enough, God's enough, God's enough. Like he's trying to psych himself up before he leaves the house every day. He wants to go out, and in every situation in his life, he wants to make known that, that God is enough. He wants people to ask him, hey, why are you so happy? God's enough. God has drawn me near to him. God keeps me. And God has promised that I won't face his wrath in the end because of what he does. See, he desires to be a witness to God's word. He wants to proclaim that God is enough, that God's grace, his mercy, his steadfast love, his kindness, his presence, God is enough. And in our circumstances, are we proclaiming with words and actions that God is enough, that Christ is enough? How can you be so happy when you're so sick, when you have such an illness? My hope is not in my health. It's going to fail one day. My hope is in Christ. How can you keep proclaiming Jesus when literally everyone around you mocks you for it? My hope isn't in their acceptance. My hope is in the fact that I've been accepted by God already through Christ. Why do you find, how do you find joy in a time of such sadness? My life isn't defined by this moment. Why are you content in being single? Why don't you just separate if your marriage isn't going well? My hope is not in my relationship status. My hope is not in whether or not my spouse and I have the perfect marriage. My hope is in Christ and that God gives counsel and that God will hold us near to him and that God is sovereign. My purpose in life is to bring God glory.
How can your mom be so happy with cancer when she seems to follow God the best? She's like a legit Christian. Why, why is she so happy if she's got the sickness? Her hope is not in her health. Marshall, your mom just passed away. Why are you so happy? Why are you still going to church? Why didn't God let your mom live longer? Why didn't, your, why didn't God let your mom see you get married? Why didn't God let your mom see her grandbaby? My hope isn't in the fact that my mom would have been here or is not here. My hope is in the fact that one day we'll both be before Christ. And yes, while it might be nice to see her, and it will be nice to see her, as Asaph says, there's nothing even in heaven that I desire more than you, God. So my hope is in the fact that we both, that every believer gets to praise God in eternity. Family, the truth is there will be times when you doubt God and his character. It's inevitable. It's in our nature. And it's because it's, in, it's inevitable that we will struggle. But we have the promise that God holds us fast, that God keeps us. That in true worship and seeking his word and his counsel, he provides counsel in that. So be encouraged knowing that he holds us fast. Be encouraged by this psalm, knowing that Christ is enough. Turn to his word, seek his counsel, and may we be found echoing the words of verse 25 and 26 every day. Let's pray. God, thank you. And all we can say this morning, God, is whom do we have in heaven but you? There's nothing on earth that we desire beside you, God. Our flesh and our heart may fail. But you, God, you are the strength of our hearts in our portions forever and ever. Amen.